Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, friends and neighbors. You're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 44, CBTI, part two. Uh, what is CBTI? In this week's episode, I'll break down the components of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI. What is CBTI? CBTI is a multi-component intervention in the management of chronic insomnia. The term chronic insomnia refers specifically to the condition of difficulty falling asleep initially, maintaining sleep, waking prematurely, or any of the above that requires significant intervention that leads to some daytime impairment in functioning. And this has to occur at least three nights a week on average, and has been going on for at least three months. I went over this in episode two for a longer discussion. Each of the components of CBTI has been shown to be effective in improving insomnia, but the combination of them all together is the most effective. As mentioned last week, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has given conditional endorsements to most of these individual components, meaning that if the complete package can't be delivered, say because you've only got 20 minutes with somebody once, or co-pays are too expensive to afford, or referral restrictions from insurance, that these subunits of CBTI are helpful. Now, the first item is often included, but not always, in formal CBT for insomnia. It's a set of recommendations collectively known as sleep hygiene. There is some older evidence showing that it helps. But a lot of this knowledge has been very widespread for a while. It may already be followed to some extent, or individuals will say they tried it once or twice, and their lives weren't profoundly different, so they abandoned it. This leads to more recent evidence showing that sleep hygiene recommendations alone are insufficient to significantly improve insomnia. But I think this is an important distinction. The recommendation is insufficient, but that doesn't mean that if the recommendations were actually followed, that they won't work. We've probably heard a lot of these before, and we've discussed a lot of them here in the podcast for good reason. The first set of sleep hygiene recommendations fall under the umbrella of timing. We've tackled this several times before, including episode 1 regarding sleep timing and consolidation of sleep. In episode 11, I discussed the circadian clock, how it is adjustable, and how variation in the timing of behavior, including the timing of waking up and falling asleep, and especially in light exposure, can dramatically affect sleep. Falling asleep, staying asleep, quality of sleep, quality of wake. In episodes 13 and 32, we saw what a dramatic effect on life and limb a change of just one hour in sleep time can have in the form of daylight savings. In episodes 22 and 23, we discussed how not keeping a consistent schedule for wake and sleep timing, or just having a delay in the timing, can be harmful to mental and physical health. 
The next subcategory of sleep hygiene you might call activity. Most commonly, this is the recommendation for exercise. Now, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who thinks exercise is bad for you. We all know that we should exercise. But knowing that we should do something is a lot different than actually doing something. If I tell you that you should exercise, but then your insomnia is no better, should I believe that exercise doesn't help? Or is it more likely that hearing someone tell you to exercise and then proceed to not follow that recommendation results in, big surprise, no improvement? We spent all of episode 6 discussing this point, that physical activity is a matter of life or death, that the average U.S. adult gets only 10 to 12 minutes a day of enough physical activity to lift their heart rate above 100 beats per minute. And that 10 to 12 minute average as a mean is a bit deceiving because wholly two out of three American adults gets zero moderate activity, the equivalent of a heart rate above 100 beats per minute or so. Zero. And moderate heart rate changes is not really the same thing as exercise. It's not going to the gym or running a marathon. Going up a single flight of stairs in your home or in an office building will get your heart rate up. And yet, with the bar being that low, two-thirds of U.S. adults can't even meet that benchmark. But when people do actually exercise, not just hearing a recommendation to exercise, it really does help. As discussed in episode 6, exercise has been shown to shorten the time to fall asleep. It increases the total sleep time, improves daytime alertness, and improves the quality of life. All things that just about anyone with insomnia would kill for. Exercise helps by both solidifying and reinforcing circadian rhythms, i.e. the timing of wake and sleep, like sleep hygiene tip number one, as well as increasing the depth and quality of sleep by enhancing N3, or slow wave sleep. The other half of the activity part of sleep hygiene is avoiding overstimulating activity shortly before sleep. And while there's some evidence of more vigorous physical activity right before sleep, making it harder to fall asleep, perhaps because of both an impact on circadian timing, but especially on body temperature. But the biggest issue here, the most important activity to avoid, would be bright light especially screens. This has come up repeatedly, especially in episodes 4 and episode 12. Light is activating for the brain, so too much light exposure too close to sleep will induce insomnia, and certainly perpetuate it if it's already there. So if you can't sleep, then staring at your phone after googling how to fix insomnia is about one of the most self-defeating things you could do. The final set of sleep hygiene recommendations falls under the umbrella of substances. We don't need to get too much into it here, but I tackled the big ones in earlier episodes. Common stimulants were addressed in episode 14 on caffeine and nicotine. In short, nicotine use at any time of day is both a death hazard and will undoubtedly interfere with sleep by the nature of the molecule and its metabolites. Caffeine is actually beneficial to many areas of health, including heart disease and cancer. The trick is in the timing. Caffeine within about 6-8 to eight hours of bedtime can cause trouble and should be avoided. But caffeinated beverages or food in the morning or with lunch are not an issue. In episode 15, I discussed the most commonly used over-the-counter sedative, which is alcohol. Not to the same extent as caffeine, but there is some benefit to heart health in modest amounts of alcohol consumption, in what is known as a J-curve, with the lowest point of risk not at zero consumption, but in very small amounts, and the highest risk at higher amounts of consumption. Alcohol, like most sedatives, as reviewed in episode 25, just wreaks havoc on sleep. Being sedated and unconscious is not the same thing as actually being asleep. Furthermore, the liver metabolizes alcohol relatively quickly, and the first breakdown products known as aldehydes can be activating, 
leading to a lot of interruption of sleep due to these primary and secondary effects of alcohol. So sleep hygiene really is necessary for good sleep, but not sufficient to fix insomnia. Therefore, sleep hygiene recommendations are often the control arm for clinical trials of insomnia. So if sleep hygiene, what I've dedicated so many episodes to, is not enough, what else does CBTI involve? The B in CBTI is for behavioral. And the behavioral recommendations for insomnia are really twofold. The first is something called sleep restriction. And the second, stimulus control. These notions were discussed back in episode 16. Sleep restriction at first sounds kind of paradoxical. If I'm having trouble sleeping or getting to sleep in the first place, why would you want to restrict that even further? It comes down to these same issues discussed way back in episode 1. Consolidated sleep is important, not just the total amount of sleep. And that is reflected by this concept of sleep efficiency. Sleep efficiency is the simple division of the total amount of time spent asleep by the total amount of time between bedtime and wake time. So, for instance, if I want to go to bed at 11 p.m. and have to wake up for work by 6 a.m., my total time in bed is 7 hours. If I'm only getting 5 hours of sleep total every night, then my sleep efficiency is 5 divided by 7, or about 71%. Often, one of the compensations we can make when we're not sleeping great is to try to squeeze out a little bit more sleep by forcing more sleep opportunities. If I only get 5 hours of sleep and 7 hours of opportunity, and I want to have 8 hours of sleep, then maybe I should spend another 3 hours in the bed. Sounds logical, right? But what ends up happening more often than not is that while time in bed increases, sleep efficiency actually goes down. So maybe with 10 hours in bed, I'm only getting 6 hours of sleep, for an efficiency of 60%. So I add more time in bed. And maybe out of 12 hours in bed, only clocking about six and a half hours of sleep for an efficiency of 54%. All the while, what I've been doing is training myself, conditioning myself to associate the bed with less and less sleep. I've come to expect, unconsciously or even consciously, that when I'm in bed, I'll spend a significant amount of time not sleeping. And that's not a good feeling. It breeds frustration, resentment of people like bed partners that don't share that struggle, and a feeling of being a failure. So now you've learned to associate the bed itself with all these negative things, including the notion that you are a bad sleeper. Sleep restriction is to reset that sleep efficiency, to get it back up, ideally to 90%, but at least 85% for the most part. So if you think you're only sleeping five hours a night out of seven hours in bed, what's the point of those two extra wasted hours in bed? Instead, restrict your opportunity to sleep to a little more than what you're already getting. So if you're only getting five hours, why not spend just six hours in bed instead of seven? You just boosted your sleep efficiency to over 83%. Then once that efficiency has reached that threshold of 85 or 90%, once you've learned consciously or unconsciously, once again, that your bed is a haven, a place to find peace, tranquility, rest and restoration, rather than anger, frustration, anxiety, and fear, then you can start extending that time in bed, carrying with you that better sleep efficiency. While insomnia is problematic, insufficient sleep is too, and getting an adequate duration of sleep is important. And it's a lot easier to get more duration of sleep when the efficiency of your time spent in bed is more appropriate. The other side of the behavioral equation is something called stimulus control. And here, the underlying notion is exactly the same. Don't waste time being awake in the bed. With sleep restriction, we do that by adjusting what time we get into and out of the bed to start and terminate that sleep period. With stimulus control, 
we're making the same kind of adjustments, but for inside the bookends of bedtime and wake time. So for instance, if you get into bed and fall asleep before 11 p.m., but then you find yourself awake at 2 in the morning, rather than fester in the bed, get out of bed. If you're going to be awake, be awake outside of the bed, so you don't reinforce the relationship between the space of the bed itself and the activity of not sleeping. Then, when you are ready, get back into the bed. This helps to maximize the time spent physically in the bed with the act of sleeping. Bed is for sleep, out of the bed is for not sleeping. This is the idea elaborated in episode 16, that by adjusting when we are physically in the bed, we can strengthen the association of the bed itself with the act of sleeping, so that when we do end up in the bed, the body has this Pavlovian reaction of going right to sleep. The C of CBTI stands for cognitive. The goal here is to both de-arouse, as well as to have a realistic and appropriate relationship with our sleep. The first part we've discussed a few times, but primarily in episodes 31 and 33, as well as in episode 36. In these episodes, I cover some ways to relax, to unwind, to transition from the activity of the day to the quiet calm of sleep. From environmental management, lights especially, to prolonged practices of progressive muscle relaxation, to just a few seconds of pursed lip breathing, relaxation is key. It is hard to fall asleep when you are physically, cognitively, emotionally all wound up. Unwinding creates a safe, friendly place to sleep. The second component of cognitive portion is developing a better relationship with our sleep. Often, we harbor dysfunctional beliefs about our sleep. Some of these are myths, like the myth that you have to get eight hours of shut-eye, and then judgments related to those myths, like if I don't get eight hours, I'm doing something wrong and I'm a failure. And these judgments and attributions can easily spiral out of control into ruminating disasters. So cognitive therapy can help address some unrealistic expectations about our sleep, or fears related to sleep or not getting enough of it, or the overestimation of the catastrophe that awaits you from one bad night. In episode 31, I discussed as part of the various writing exercises that can be helpful in the transition towards sleep, this notion of a brain dump or a thought record. With it all written out on paper, it is a bit easier to run some experiments, like we talked about for standard CBT in episode 42. These are mostly thought experiments, like exploring what would actually happen if this were true, or even putting your thoughts on the witness stand in the trial of the century of what's happening with your sleep. The point is not to make yourself feel bad or stupid for having an anxious thought, nor are you expected to have all the answers. But we've all had bad nights, as explored in episode 20. And they haven't all ended in the skies falling. But they didn't really feel good either. So maybe your anxiety is trying to tell you something important but it isn't word-for-word word literally true. So cognitive exercises are not just about the content of our thoughts in regards to sleep, but also how we relate to these thoughts. Do we obsess over them? Do we hold them in the highest regard? Do we never second-guess? Do we over-second-guess? Do we feel embarrassed or ashamed of them? Do we shove them in a dark closet and never speak of them again? Or do we embrace them with open arms and hold them with a bit of self-compassion? So to summarize, CBTI, or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, is the most effective treatment for this condition. CBT, as we saw in episode 42, is the gold standard intervention that involves addressing our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. As demonstrated in episode 43 last week, it is highly effective for insomnia, improving the time to fall asleep, reducing the time spent awake across the night, increasing the total amount of sleep, 
increasing sleep efficiency, and importantly, improving daytime function. This holds true whether old or young, pregnant or menopausal, arthritic or depressed, asthmatic or dealing with sleep apnea. It holds true whether delivered individually or in a group, in person or via telecommunication, handled solo with an app or with a book, or with a board-certified provider. CBTI involves reinforcing the necessary, but not sufficient, components of sleep hygiene, including issues of timing, activity, and substances. It involves behavioral adjustments, primarily relating to when and how long you are physically in the bed. It involves strategies to improve relaxation toward the end of the day, and challenging unskillful and dysfunctional beliefs about our sleep, but relating to them in a way that doesn't breed shame or guilt or embarrassment. And CBTI does this all without harmful drugs or expensive devices, with no snake oil tinctures, supplements, or scams. I've got a little handout for you, so if you head over to wellrestedmd.com day, you can get a free cheat sheet to a day in the life of the well-rested, including some specific best practices to get that good snooze. That's wellrestedmd.com day. Be sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to get all the latest episodes. Leave us a review, and head over to wellrestedmd.com for more information. Thanks for listening.